Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? I love, I love that song. Let me tell you why I love that song. There's a promise that Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this. It says that there is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled reserved in heaven for you. Think about that. If you're a child of God through the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, by faith in Christ alone, there is an inheritance reserved in heaven waiting for you. When we get there, isn't that an awesome reality, an awesome truth that we can bank our lives on as children of the Father, that Christ brought us into this relationship with the Father so that we can reflect him, that we can live for him, that we can have a hope and a future. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible there, I just want to see back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 836, Mark chapter 1, page 836. As you turn there, let me just say a big thank you for uh, coming, inviting, joining us for Easter at Crossroads. We had 4,800 people come to every campus. Um, we, had, we gave out nearly 70 packets for decisions, many people that prayed and uh, made some decisions for Christ. So thank you for your faithfulness inv inviting. Uh, we, we're, we appreciate a culture of invitation to welcome people into the body of Christ. So thank you for your invitation. If you're here, maybe you're here for Easter, this is your first time, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the courage to come back, and uh, we hope that you'll be blessed by what God is doing through and in our church as we celebrate members, new members joining our church, celebrate what God is doing. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, amazing. Uh, last year we decided to really celebrate those who join our church. Uh, pastor Doug, our community's pastor, Pastor Jesse, our Next Steps pastor, we talked through how can we really uh, bring a little bit of elevation to the idea of being a member of Crossroads. And, and what membership is is really accountability. It's a chance to really do life together, to say we're committed to each other for the cause of Christ, to encourage, exhort, and remind each other. And last year total we had 89 people that, that made a decision to become members of Crossroads, and so we celebrated that. Already this quarter, this first part of the year, uh, we have 40. And so God is doing a great thing. Thank you for, yeah, what God is doing. And if you're here and you want to be a part, we'd love to have you. Join us to be a part of our family and uh, to be able to give, to, to serve, to connect, and share the gospel, uh, to be a church that's making a difference in our region. Mark chapter 1, we're kicking off a series that we've called Empty. If Christ rose from the dead, then why is it that so many people experience empty living? Why do so many people feel empty? Maybe you're here and, and this thing is new to you and, and you're looking for something to fill that vacuum-shaped hole in your heart. For others of us here, we know Christ, we know this journey, we know what it means to have faith in Christ, and yet there are seasons, there are periods, there are times where we feel empty, aren't there? Times where it feels as if our spiritual reality is depleted, as if there's a void. And the question we want to answer over the next few weeks is what does it look like? How, how do we deal with those circumstances? How do we deal with depression? How do we deal with anxiety and worry? How, how do we deal with guilt and shame? And this morning we want to talk about this idea of fast-paced living, frantic-paced living. Now let me ask you this before we dive in. How many of you have ever run out of gas in your car? Anybody? How many of you actually like the journey of living on the edge of almost running out of gas? Anybody like me? I love that. I love that. Doug Wolf, I had no doubt that you did. Right? I don't know about you. I love to live on that edge. And I remember when we first moved here, 
uh, we moved in at the end of December, beginning of January. Our son Caleb played basketball. We went to Mansfield, Mansfield Christian School, and he played on the basketball team. And uh, within the first week that we were here, uh, there was an away game. And, and one of the differences that I realized about Ohio and Maryland, Ohio's a bigger state than Maryland's a small state, but in Maryland, when you would go to an away game, it usually was about 15 to 20 minutes away. Your conference games. Here in Ohio, like literally you could have a conference game and it's 45 minutes away in the middle of nowhere. And, and so it's a very different reality. And so we were here the first week, didn't know any of the roads, didn't know where we were supposed to be, and we were supposed to go to this away game. And so uh, my family are actually already headed there. They went to the school and I was supposed to meet them there. And so I was on my way here from the church and I put it in the GPS system, not knowing that GPSs don't work on these back roads sometimes. And so I'm going uh, down the road and, and journeying to this game. And, and as I'm going, as, as I get kind of on a back road heading to the school, I realize that I forgot to fill up on gas. And so the dreaded gas light came on. Ding. And I knew this could be a problem. But no problem for my attitude because I thought this is a challenge. We're going to see how far I can get on fumes. I realized, I was smart enough to realize I probably got about 40 miles. And then whatever's left in the tank on fumes, I think I can make it there. Well, as I'm going, this, this situation is getting bleaker and bleaker. As I go farther, I'm realizing time is beginning to run. And all I'm doing is going from one back road to a deeper back road. In fact, eventually I lead myself into a one-lane road. And I'm like, I have no clue what's going to happen. If I stall here, there's no one that's going to help me. I don't have triple A. I don't even know what road I'm on. And it's funny how when you run out of gas how it increases your prayer life, <laughs> doesn't it? So I called out, God, if you could walk out of the grave, you can cause a gas station to appear ahead. And this is not a lie. I'm driving along, and slowly my car begins to shake. It's running out of gas. It's convulsing. And then as I turn around a bend, it stalls, and I drift right into a gas station right there on the corner of a road. And I'm able to drift far enough in that the handle will reach only to the, the port of the gas. I gotta tell you, after that I was like, Lord, you were with me, thank you. Uh, I praised the Lord. Maybe you've done that before, maybe you've experienced that. But isn't it interesting how many of us feel like life is the same way? As if we're barely making it by. As if we're barely drifting into where God would want us to be. As if we're depleted and, and the gas engine tank of life is on and we're wondering what lies ahead. Am I just going to find a source that's going to give me some refreshment, some replenishment? Is there something ahead I can grab to that will fill this emptiness that I experience? I want to talk about this incredibly fast runaway culture that's out of control here this morning. It's interesting, years ago I read a book by a doctor named Dr. Richard Swenson. Let me just confess to you, this topic of frantic-paced living is a big struggle for me. If you were to ask me one of my biggest sinful areas, it is that I, I, I live the way I speak. I talk fast, I live fast. And the thing that happens to me, I just in full disclosure, is I go hard, go hard, go hard, and then I crash with sickness. That's what happens to me. And I do it over, and I know I shouldn't do it, but it happens, and I live this fast-paced life. And, and so I read this book years ago by Dr. Richard Swenson. Dr. Richard Swenson was a medical doctor back in the 70s and 80s. And what he found is he, as he had this practice, he found that most of the patients that came to him, they had physical needs, 
But the deeper issue was the impact of culture on them. Yes, there were physical issues and sicknesses and ailments, but the bigger deal was actually the pace of life they were trying to live. And so in the 80s, he gave up his practice to become a professor to research this idea of what he called health and culture. He began to write articles and papers, and it began to get steam, and people began to follow it. And so he wrote it in a book, and the book was called Margins. And what it was about margin, restoring uh, emotional, physical, financial, and time resources to overloaded lives. He wrote this book to engage this, this necessity as he saw the intersection of health and culture. And so he wrote this book. And the idea is this, that a notebook paper has margins. A web page has margins. A Word document has margins. A newspaper magazine has margins. And what we see in the empty space as insignificant, unnecessary, forgotten about, even not even realized, he actually said that space is greatly important. Why? Because without the margins around the page, even a web page, everything that is written would actually blur together. It wouldn't make sense. You couldn't read it. So the margins actually frame the fullness of what is written. And so he said, we got to have margins in life. Those margins frame the work that needs to be done in our lives. In fact, he goes on to write that God works best in the margins. That God actually works in the empty spaces of life. So in Christianity, if, if we don't have margin, then God actually doesn't work. Or, or God is working, but he's working through the corruption of busyness, through the corruption and blur of culture running rampant and amok. He says, the margins frame what is full. Now, that happened years ago, and that book came out. And now he continued the study. And what he found was, this is becoming all the more dangerous. Because he sees a culture that is running out of control, and now lives that are trying to get margin, and those two things clash. Those two things run against each other. And so he came up with a concept called dysfunctional math. Now, we understand math, right? Math is orderly. One plus one is? Thank you, the five people that knew that. Two plus two is? Wow, okay, one plus one is tough, but two plus two is a little easier. It's orderly, right? Math is orderly. Math makes sense. But what he said is, is math can become chaotic when it speeds up, when it gets larger, right? When it, it becomes dysfunctional. And here, here's what he said. I want to read it to you. He says, we now have a culture exploding in information and throwing us off trajectory. We have a world that is witnessing constant change, but never before with such levels of speed complexity, intensity, information, communication, media, money, mobility, technology, weaponry, and interconnectedness. Never before has it been to this speed. And so he said, all of these things are orderly things. Communication, interconnectedness, technology, it's all orderly. But when you put them all together with warp speed, they become dysfunctional. And so he called it dysfunctional math. Let me give you some examples. Do you know, realize that there is more video uploaded to YouTube in 60 days than there was by the major networks in 60 years? There's more video uploaded to YouTube in 60 days than in 60 years with all the major networks combined. He, he says Google scientists have counted that there are over one trillion different web pages online. One trillion web pages online. 
In fact, even Starbucks is complex. At Starbucks, there are 55,000 different coffee configurations. Can you imagine being the tester for that, by the way? Hey, just mix those two together. Let's see what that does. All right, let's do that now. By the way, here at Crossroads Coffee and Tea, we have 35,000 different coffee configurations. <laughs> we're not quite there, but we're working our way up. He said even, even, even Starbucks has gotten complex. You can get 55,000 different co- co- uh, configurations of coffee. He, he said this. He, he found that the, the fastest growing addiction in America is a cell phone. It's actually becoming a dysfunctional addiction. There's counselors now majoring in cell phone addiction. He, he found that 57% of Americans never use their allotted vacation time. Think about that. 60% of Americans are not using their allotted vacation time. Uh, if you're one of those, can you come to me afterwards? I love to borrow your vacation time. I'll take it off your hands for you. He then went on and he did a study. Again, just this is all dysfunctional math. He did a study and he found that 60% of Americans said this. 60, 60% of Americans says, yes, I wish I could slow down. Yes, I wish I could cope better with the busyness of life. Here's his point. He says there's a culture that's crying out to us more. More money, more time, more effort, more, 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 more. And yet there's people that are saying, I need more time. I need more rest. I need more relationship. I need, I need more of God. I need more of scripture. I need more prayer. I need more, I need more time. I need to be able to have more. And he says these two things are running like two freight trains at each other. And all they're doing is colliding and creating chaos in people's life. Why? Because when margin decreases, dysfunction increases. When margin decreases, stress begins to rise. All of a sudden, sleep deprivation and and depression and anxiety and shame and guilt begin to grip us. When, when, When margin decreases, relationship ability decreases. Now all of a sudden we no longer can have a relationship with people that are any deep. Why? Because we don't have the time. And so it leaves us overloaded and maxed out. And spiritually our souls become weary. They become shallow as we dissolve to emptiness. And the question is how do we escape that? What I want to do this morning is look at an example. You know what I love about the Gospels? What I love about the Bible is the Bible doesn't only declare that Jesus is Savior and Lord. The Bible doesn't only declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. The Bible shows us that Jesus also is our model. That Jesus is someone we can look to to understand how we ought to live life. Now, when we see the Gospels, the Gospels, there are four Gospel authors. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses of the work of Jesus. Mark and Luke were actually students of Paul who then talked to eyewitnesses and wrote the account down. Now, Mark is the smallest of the Gospels, and it's very unique. Why? Because Matthew points out that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And so he's writing to Jews, and that's why there's different perspectives in the Gospels. It's not because they contradict. They're writing with a different perspective. They're writing from a different angle. So Matthew writes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Luke writes that Jesus is the son of God. And so Luke is writing to Gentiles and says, no, Jesus is the son of God, and you should trust him. John, the apostle, writes from a perspective that Jesus is God, the deity of Christ. And so you find seven statements by Jesus, seven declarations by the world, seven signs and seven miracles that prove Jesus was indeed God. But Mark, Mark comes from a different angle. Mark writes from the angle that Jesus is fully human. 
In fact, if you could theme it, Mark writes that Jesus is the Son of Man. He wants to prove that Jesus wasn't just God, but Jesus was also fully, divine, uh, fully human. He was a man. He was overwhelmed with the things that we experience, yet he did it without sin. That he is a model worthy of following. That he was pressed on every side. He felt anxiety. He felt worry. Without sin. He felt uh, tiredness. He felt hunger. He felt all that we experienced, yet he was able to endure it perfectly. So, here we are in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at one of these examples. Now, this is early on in Jesus' ministry here in Mark chapter 1. He just called his disciples... He heals a, a man who was demon-possessed, and now we pick up the story in verse 28, Mark 1, 28. And it says, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So his fame is spreading, he's casting out demons and healing. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So here are the disciples he called. These were fishermen. He called them just early in the chapter, and now they follow him. So he goes to the house of Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, who was ill with a fever. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or pressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. That is why I came to preach this message of who I am. I want to look at four aspects of the model of Jesus when it comes to frantic living. No, notice the fame is spreading about Jesus, right? I mean, he's getting well-known. He's healing. This is very early in his ministry. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And then we come to verse 29. Take a look at verse 29. If you'd like to underline, this is a moment to underline in your Bible. Notice verse 29. It says, and immediately. Now, we might read over that and think, no big deal. But this word immediately actually stands out in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because Mark is writing from a human perspective. Here's Jesus as man. The word immediately actually shows up nearly 40 times in 16 short chapters in Mark. In chapter 1, the word immediately shows up 12 times. 12 times in one chapter. So what, what, what Mark is trying to show us is that Jesus was pressed by immediacy. Jesus was pressed by, the, by a culture of immediate. Now, now, you got to do this. He was, he was connected to a culture that was asking much of him. Everything was immediate. Here's, here's point one as we try to apply this to our lives. Busyness begins with immediacy. Number one, busyness begins with immediacy. His fame is growing, and notice this fame not only goes to the culture, the Galilee, the area, but it also comes to his own followers. Isn't it interesting when you feel pressed and busy, how a lot of that busyness is also created by those closest to you? Even though they know that you should have breaks, they, right? There's a demand on us, right? And there's a demand. A family has a demand on us, and they should. They, our kids should expect some things from us. Our grandkids, right? There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a immediacy to their needs. Well, here we see that as well. Jesus faced that. Jesus faced this idea in his own followers. By the way, I find this very funny and a little conjecture. Here's Peter, right? Peter was a fisherman. Uh, and remember, right in chapter 1 of Mark, uh, 
Jesus comes to the fishermen and he says, hey, cast your net into the deep, and they do, and they pull out fish galore, and Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Can you imagine, again, a little conjecture here, can you imagine the conversation with Peter and his wife? I can imagine him going home and going, honey, you wouldn't believe what happened today. I caught more fish than I've ever caught before, but I'm leaving the fishery and I'm going to follow this man, Jesus. And she goes, what? Excuse me? That's what she did. I, it's, it's not there, but I'm What did you say? Uh-uh, you get back in this room, you tell me again, right? And he says, no, I'm going I'm to follow this guy, Jesus. I, 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 he's called me to be a fisher of men. Fisher of what? Go catch some fish. We need the money. This is our income. And, and that's the image I have of the conversation with his wife. Can you imagine the conversation with his mother-in-law? Or his mother-outlaw, whichever it was. And so here is Peter saying, Jesus, I need you to come heal my mother-in-law. Now, two things happen, right? Jesus graciously heals her. And what happens is it not only authenticates Jesus' ministry, it authenticates Peter's calling. It authenticates to the family that Jesus is indeed worthy of following. And so we see this Jesus being pressed in not only by those outside, but even those inside of the ministry. Here's the point. The point is, for whatever reason, many of us have adopted a mentality that everything is immediate. We live in a culture of immediacy and an age of impatience. We want things now. We believe things should happen in our timing. We want immediacy. Except we don't want it on ourselves, do we? So in other words, I want that shipment from Amazon to come as Amazon Prime promises. I want that web page to, to not buffer, but I want it to load immediately. I want that movie I'm streaming, streaming never to stop. I want fast food with fast pace, with fast transportation, with, with fast beauty and fast weight loss and fast training and fast relief. I want everything fast. I want it now. I want the person who puts me on hold to give me somebody else so I don't have to wait on hold on customer service. Right? We want our news to be immediate. We live in a culture of immediacy. Now here's what happens. What happens is, because we feel the weight of immediacy, everything is immediate. If you're in school, things become immediate. I gotta get this done. I gotta get in a culture of immediacy, the only way we escape in our culture is to get busy. Right? So in order to escape immediacy, I get busy so that I can make an excuse why it's not immediate. So someone comes and says, I need this immediately. Hey, I can't do it. I'm busy. I've got this and this and this and this. And so busyness becomes an actual way of escaping the pressure of immediacy we feel. Jesus here gets that. He is being pressed immediately, actually is repeated twice in those verses. Immediately is coming against him. Immediacy is coming against him. And we see that he's extremely busy. For us, we use it to manipulate the immediacy and try to take advantage of it. Now, watch what happens to Jesus. This goes one step further. Notice verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Let's stop there for a moment. I've been under some pressure in my life, but I have never had everyone who was sick come to me. I don't know about you, but I have never had the entire city at my door. Never happens, right? Probably none of us here can claim that, I'm sure. If, if you can claim that, let, me, let us know. We want to know who you are, right? It doesn't happen this way, but for Jesus, this happened. Now, watch what happens. This is eye-opening. The contrast here, don't miss it. It's huge. Notice, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to even speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. Notice the difference of the contrast. The entire city is outside the door waiting for him 
And yet, who does he heal? Many. Not all of them. He doesn't take advantage of this opportunity in the way that we would think. Here's the point. Opportunities are not obligations. Opportunities are not obligations. Now, please, don't get me wrong. Busyness is not a bad word. Busyness is not a four-letter word. Busyness is a good thing. The problem is we cross over into chaotic busyness. Too busy. Overwhelmed busy. Frantic paced busy. Jesus here in a busy season doesn't heal every single person. He doesn't take the opportunities that are given to him and make them obligations. By the way, you read the Gospels. You see over and over and over again Jesus walking over lepers to get to one. You see him walking past lame people to get to one or two. He doesn't heal every single person. We're going to see in a moment. There's a reason for that. But notice he doesn't heal every single person. He reserves the right to say no. Now, if this was in our day, can you imagine there would be some people and say, I cannot believe he did not respond to my Facebook post. I cannot believe he did not say happy birthday to me through Instagram. That's our culture today, right? This is how it works. Jesus didn't do that. He said no. He didn't see opportunity as obligation. For you and I in our culture, we see busyness as faithfulness. We think if we're busy, then it must equal that we're faithful. But Jesus throws a wrench in that idea. Busyness does not equal faithfulness. Busyness just means we're busy. Now, you might be here this morning, and I, I know I feel the weight of that sometimes in my life. Again, this is something I struggle with greatly, where we feel like, well, wait, I, I've got emails, and I've got right, phone calls, I've got a text message I've got to respond to, and, then, and, then, and you feel that weight as well. And then you've you got to keep up with Facebook, and then you've got the gram. You've got to make sure you're posting enough on the gram, and all of a sudden you're forgetting people, and you're wondering. And what happens is, now some of you might say, well, listen, Dave, I've got to do that. I've got to work. I've got to do these things. And can I tell you, no, actually, you don't. We're, we take opportunities and make them obligations and we never say no and say, no, no, I need some boundaries in my life. And all of a sudden what happens is we actually don't do them because we have to do them. We do them because we feel needed by people and we find our insecurity filled and we do them. By the way, very interesting study, secular study done by Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal did a, did a study on people that use their cell phones when they're not working. And it was, a very, it was an eye-opening study. Here's what they found. They found that nearly 80% of the people that use their cell phones when they're not working will say that they're using it for work. But they took that study a little bit deeper, and they found that only 30% of them were actually doing work. So take it, 80% were using their cell phones and saying they were working. Only 30% were actually doing work. So that was that 50% somewhere around there. 50% of people were actually using their phones, making it feel as if they were busy, as if they were needed. But in fact, they were not. The Wall Street Journal, this is what they said. They said people inflate and exaggerate their workload to create mental pictures of themselves in which they feel legitimately needed. Isn't that interesting? That, that we seem busy, and what it is is a cry in us to feel that there's a legitimacy when their answer should be no, because all that's happening is it's building in us a greater core of insecurity we become less safe in our own skin. And what Jesus here shows us, don't miss this, what Jesus shows us is just because we can doesn't mean we should. Just because we can doesn't mean we should do. Just because the opportunity presents itself doesn't mean I have to do it. In fact, I love this. The word no is a complete sentence by itself. Parents, you know this, don't you? Grandparents, you used to know this. Now it's the magic yes. But, but right, kids, my boys will come to me, and they, Dad, Dad, can we do this? No. 
stands by itself. I don't have to explain to them why. No. Dad, you're sure can't do that. No, no. It's the magic of no. No. <laughs> Throw it out everywhere. Then they'll be like, I'm going to mom. Sure, go to mom. Mom's, mom's more of a no than I am. Let me just tell you, boys. And so they'll go to mom. No, no, not doing that. It's the magic of no, right? No stands by itself. Jesus here is giving us a model of no. See, spiritually, we can begin to think if I'm busy, I'm faithful. I'm being fruitful. No, 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 we're just being busy. Here, Jesus shows us that sometimes we have to say no so we can say a yes to something better. We have to say no so that we're ready to say a better yes to what he's calling us to. That there are times we should say no so that we're in a healthy place to do what God is calling us to do. Now this story doesn't end here. Notice what happens. So he doesn't say yes to everyone. He only heals many instead of all. Notice verse 35. And rising very early in the morning while it's still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Here's point three. What we find is we must intentionally establish rhythms of rest. Notice Jesus escapes and goes to a place that is desolate. Very interesting, by the way. Notice he does it after it's morning. What I mean is he slept. He physically would be rejuvenated. He has slept, but he realized there's a deeper hole in that or a deeper understanding he needs to model for us. Of course, Jesus understood this being fully God, but he also fully human, shows us that he needed something even more, that he needed to model for us something more. And so what does he do? Early in the morning, he goes out to a desolate place. If you like to study the Bible, I want to encourage you, go home and study how often Jesus goes to a desolate place. It's eye-opening. Anytime something great happens, the next thing we see is Jesus going to a desolate place. He feeds the 5,000. He sends the disciples on a boat. Where does he go? He goes to a desolate place. Why? Because he understood that there had to be an intentional, strategic, and consistent rhythm of rest. Rhythm of seeking after the Father. And can I tell you, if Christ, who was fully God and fully man, had to do that, I have to do that. You have to do that. We need to establish rhythms of rest. Why? Because God knows we cannot exceed our limits and still be healthy. We cannot exceed our capacity and still be considered healthy. By the way, isn't it interesting that God stirred this in his rhythm of life from the very beginning? In the rhythm of our creation, he stirred this in. Remember God creates six days, and what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. Now why did God rest? God didn't make man and say, man, I need a rest, I need a break. And then he created a woman and said, now I'm exhausted, I really need a break. <laughs> that came out totally wrong. I did not mean it that way. I did not, I you, thank you, I did not mean it that way. You should not have said amen, Doug. <laughs> Why did God rest? It says in the scripture, he said it was very good. What did he do? He, he rested to enjoy his creation. He, he rested to sit back and go, wow, look at all that I have done. Look at all that has been accomplished. Look, it is very good. And then what does he do? He creates, those people multiply, and then there's a nation. Now there's, these people are fallen, so he has to build this back in. And so there's a nation called Israel. And what does he do? He makes it a law, a law to stop and reflect on his goodness and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh, it's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. Notice the Sabbath is not for them. The Sabbath is to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servants, your female servants, your livestock, the sojourner who is with you in the gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He says, rest. Now, God knows this well, because he knows what happens. As Jesus comes on the scene, the religious leaders began to teach, you better rest on this day. In fact, not only do you rest on this day, but you better not walk these many steps or you're in sin. So what does Jesus do? Jesus in Mark chapter 1 heals a, a, a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath. And later on, Paul writes about this picture of the Sabbath. Because he knows religious people will go, well, fine, I'm going to keep Saturday. Nothing happens on Saturday. We're not doing anything. Or Sunday, nothing. So, so Paul confronts that. Religious people make rules, don't they? So Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, Colossians 2.16, or with regard to a festival or a new moon, or seven. Let me repeat that. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things yet to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know what Paul says? Paul says the point is not about the day. The point is not about the hour. The point is not about the period. Here's the point. The point is the practicality. The point is that we should have moments where we take rhythms of rest and engage Christ to realize that what life is but, is but a shadow and Christ is the light of it. So, by the way, many people take Sabbath and they don't do anything for the glory of God. They don't think about Christ at all. That's not his point. Right, take a Sabbath day and go rest and sleep all day. That's not the point. Or watch a game. Nothing wrong with those things. But true Sabbath is actually saying, God, I want to reflect on what you have done for me. I want to reflect on your goodness. I want to reflect on how faithful you have been. I, I, I want to think about what you've done. Jesus here doesn't just offer rest. He actually shows us what rest looks like. Notice, it's not physical or mental here. It's spiritual. He's hearing the Father's voice. He is understanding the Father's direction. He is resting in the Father's presence. This is so important. Don't miss this. See, see many people come to Christ and they think, well, what, Christianity is just trading one frantic pace of life for another frantic pace of life, right? That coming to Christ is, well, I'm busy. I'm busy without Christ, and now I come to Christ, and now I've got to do this and that and do all of these things. No, 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 that's not what the Scripture says. In fact, Christianity is all centered on rest. Now, one of my favorite verses is found in in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said these words in verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Notice the word come to me. It, it is not an imperative in the sense of a command, but it's a forceful word. It's an invitation. Come to me. Come to me. Faith. Come to me by faith. Trust in me. Believe what I say is true. And what happens? You will find rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. These are commands. Take my yoke, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what he says here? He says, listen, come to me and then take the yoke. Now, you read this and it seems contradictory, right? If, if I'm coming to him and it's freedom and rest, then why do I take a yoke that stands for work, right? A yoke was what they would put on oxen to go on a field and plow it. But see, a farmer would understand this truth because in the first century farming, they would take a young oxen and they would yoke it with an oxen experienced and powerful. And what would happen is the, the, the older experienced oxen would actually show the younger oxen which direction to go and how to do this. And so they would train the younger oxen by attaching them to a more mature and a powerful oxen. Here's the point. When we yoke our lives to Jesus Christ, there's not more expectation. There's just more identity. There's not more expectation, there's rest. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Uh, let me give you another illustration of this very quickly. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna state, make a statement. You, you respond to this and tell me who they are. Who is, I better start with somebody good. Who is LeBron James? Basketball player, former Cavalier, right? Who, who is Miley Cyrus? I have no clue why I picked her, by the way. Singer, right? Who, who is Donald Trump? Now, be, be good, be good here. Right, President? Think about this. Every time we answer that question, notice we answer it not with who they are, but with what they do. LeBron James, basketball player. Donald Trump, president. Right? We answer it not by who they are. So, so what happens? In moments of rest, I'm building up who I am so that I can go do what God has come to do. That's the picture of the oxen. I, I'm leaning into the fact that I've been identified and made new by Christ. And as I realize that, now I live a new life. I, live, I don't live in burden. I don't live in frantic pace living. I live in rest. Can I tell you how this looks in my own life? I've seen this because I've lived this world. When I take moments and seasons to have regular rhythms of rest, and I'm not talking about sleep, I'm not talking about watching a game, I'm talking about rhythms where I'm focused on the person of Christ and who I am in him. You know what happens? Every single time, God reminds me of what he's done for me in salvation. He reminds me of the empty tomb. He reminds me of the cross. You know what happens? All of a sudden, there's a peace that comes over my soul. You know why? Because the one thing that matters in life, the one thing that will matter in eternity, the one thing that matters when I stand before God, it's done. It's set. I don't have to do anything for it. I don't have to earn it, gain it, do, I don't have to work for it. It's accomplished. And so in that moment, my soul goes, oh, God, thank you that I can rest in you because when I stand before you, all the things that I do will not, will not matter except for what you have done in me. Notice the story doesn't end here as, as we close. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Man, you're so successful. You've, you've done all these great things. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Number four, and here is the picture. Number four, don't be defined by the demands of life, but make your purpose a priority. Don't be defined by the demands of life, but make purpose a priority. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew why he came to earth. It wasn't to heal every single person of physical needs. He came to die on a cross, to walk out of a grave, to secure our spiritual freedom. He knew his purpose. Let me ask you this morning, what is your purpose? Is your purpose to make money? Is your purpose just to have a family? Again, nothing wrong with that. Is your purpose just that job? Is your purpose right? What is your purpose? What is your purpose? And then, what is it that you make your priority? Can I tell you, frantic pace living and busyness show us more about what defines our life than we realize. So what happens if I say, no, my purpose is to bring glory to God. My purpose is to, to live for him. Then all of a sudden, my family falls into place. I understand the purpose. My kids fall into place. I understand the purpose. My job falls into place. It, it doesn't define me. It's just what I do to bring glory to God is what I do to reflect him. Right? All of a sudden, everything comes back to its purpose. Jesus here understood his purpose. He was able to keep the main thing the main thing. And you and I get the opportunity to decide that. We get to make the decision of what our time is used for. Don't let what is urgent crowd what is most important. 
the culture's throwing at us, all these urgent things. Don't let what is urgent crowd out what is most important. And as we close, I, I was reading a study by Charleston Southern University Business School. And they actually polled Christians. Now, I know that's a loose term in our culture. What is a Christian, what's not? And we believe the Bible defines that. But they were, they were interviewing Christians. And this is what they found. Very interesting, secular study. They found that 68% of professing Christians said they were busy or too busy. 65% said that they believe busyness, busyness gets in the way of their relationship with God. So think about this. 65% of Christians say, I'm too busy to have a deep relationship with God. 55% said the busyness is why they lack faithfulness to the local church. And by the way, the church that God bought with his blood and commissioned us into. 55% said, I'm too busy for it. I'm too busy. 50% said they're too busy to spend times of rest in prayer and in study. There were 50% of Christians say, I don't have time. So the question I have, then does he really matter? Like, if we're too busy to be committed to the things that belong to God and that God has called us to, then if we're too busy for those things, then are they really real in us? Do they really matter to us? Do, do they really define us then? And can I tell you, if not, you will live an empty life. If not, you will be depleted. You know, one of the greatest dangers of busyness is it doesn't lead us to sit at the feet of Jesus. It doesn't lead us to the place that we so desperately need. I was talking to a friend of mine who was visiting here and he was, we talked about this illustration of a ceiling fan. We're almost to the time where we can turn our ceiling fans on, not this week, but hopefully next week. Isn't it interesting, a ceiling fan goes around and I don't know about you, sometimes we'll turn our ceiling fan on and we forget it's on, just let it go. And it rotates and you could leave that ceiling fan on constant, some people do, and that fan will go and go and go. And you know what's interesting? Somehow that ceiling fan continues to collect dust, but you just don't know it. Isn't it true? You leave it on, and I think by nature, right, it's spinning. It should never collect dust. But somehow, it gets dusty, and it gets dirty. For, can I tell you, that's the way it works. Some of us are so busy. Our lives are collecting dust, and we're wondering why we feel the way we do. May we take an inventory of our life and find the freedom that we have in rest with Christ. May we take an inventory and say, am I doing the important things or am I only doing the urgent things? Am I taking every opportunity and making an obligation or am I resting in what Christ has done for me? Yes, work hard. Yes, be busy. But I do it with a boundary of what Christ has done, knowing my limits, living in margin so I can live on mission. Would you stand with me as we pray? We're going to pray and then we're going to end with this song just as a reminder of God's faithfulness and goodness that there is freedom in him and there is rest in his name. God, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. God, I need this reminder. It's so easy to get depleted. The void, the hollowness. It's so easy to feel like we're running on empty constantly. And so God, to see Christ, you as a model not just Savior and King, but a model that we need to live after. 
a model that we need to pursue. God, I pray that we would have rhythms of rest built in and established strategically, intentionally. God, I pray that you would allow us to remember our purpose, our mission. It's not just to work and have a family and, 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 and have a house and eventually die. No, no, God, that our purpose is greater than that. That all those things flow out of a greater purpose and that is to bring you glory. To bring you glory in, in how we do those things. And so, God, I pray that you remind us of our priorities. Though we reevaluate re and in areas replenish, refuel. Lord, if we have that E on in our souls, I pray the light of emptiness would go away and that we would be full in your grace, full in your freedom. All for your name, our great Savior, our great Lord, our model, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing this song to him.